than that. Okay, now that you're nice and uncomfortable, let me pray for us and we'll dig into this together. Father God, we do thank you so much for today. We're grateful to belong to a church where we can talk about things like this, even uncomfortable topics, because we believe that maybe some of the most uncomfortable topics out there are some of the most important. And we thank you, God, that your word, the truth that you've given us, gives us a breadth of topics to handle and wrestle with that addresses all of life. I'm grateful for that, God, and the growth that I've had even just this past week exploring this subject is powerful. And my prayer, God, for myself and for my friends in the room today is that you'd take us on a journey to understand your heart. God, I believe that you are the most pro-sex being in all of the universe. And that the Bible, though it's been painted as anti-sex, God, I believe it is the greatest book on sex that there is out there. And I pray that you would just help us to understand your design, your goodness, God, the way that you've designed it so good. And I pray that it would point us all to you in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys ready? All right, here we go. Objection number one. Uh, sex is a natural appetite that should be satisfied. This is one of the things that's said in our community. It's, an, it's a natural appetite. And just like when I get hungry, I go find a burger. Sex is kind of like that. You know, when I'm thirsty, I go find a drink. And when I'm just, when I'm feeling that inner urge, I got to satisfy it. Um, Margaret Sanger actually from Planned Parenthood said that sex uh, from the Christian perspective actually is one of the most suppressive and repressive self-denying things out there and that's why we have to reject it because it doesn't take in the fact that sex is a natural appetite. We have to satisfy this biological natural urge that goes from the inside of us. And the, the kind of images that we get on this one, you know, from popular TV, uh, it's kind of like someone that just gets this hankering for a Big Mac, you know? If, if you've ever been there, like you're driving down the road, and you're just like, oh man, you feel that little tummy gurgle, you know, go right across. Like, man, I could really use a Big Mac right now. And, and like, you just, you're going to go get a Big Mac. And we see that in TV shows and movies, like these two, they've been forming this little friendship for a little bit. It's, it's starting to get a little bit, you know, intimate and all that. And then all of a sudden that urge comes and then bam, they start taking their clothes off and things get intimate fast. And it's, you know, that's just like what the pinnacle of sex in that moment is like, that passion. If you're feeling it naturally, you've got to satisfy it. Now, here's the first thing I want to address on that one. Sex is unlike any other natural appetite that we have. It's so different, radically different. And in fact, the way that we've engaged it in our culture shows us that it's radically different. In fact, it shows us there's something distorted about the appetite itself. And let me illustrate it this way. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, which I cannot recommend higher, it's an incredible book, uh, he put it this way. He's picturing, he's putting us in the context of a striptease. And I know this is probably the last thing that you expected to hear on a Sunday morning in church, but this is what, how he put it. He goes, you can, you can get a large audience together for a strip, striptease act, that is to watch a girl undress on the stage, uh, and now suppose you came from a different country, where you could fill a large theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage, and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Think about that for a second. If all you're doing is lifting up that plate just to show a burger and people are going crazy, 
just before the lights go out, wouldn't you assume in that moment something had gone wrong with the appetite for hunger? He says, and would not anyone had grown up in a different world come here to earth think that there's something equally wrong about the state of sex instinct among us? There's something distorted. And his whole point is that if, man, we're going so crazy after that, just the sight of it, the appetite itself has become distorted. Now, someone could argue in that moment, well, you know, maybe people would go crazy after a mutton chop or a piece of bacon or a hamburger if it's lifted under a plate— Uh, if that country was starving. If they had never seen a mutton chop or maybe like they never get any meals ever and they open up that plate, man, like they're going to go crazy because they've never had that. That logic just doesn't, doesn't apply here in America. I mean, sex is all over the place. It's rampant. Our culture is saturated with sex. I mean, you can, with a click of a button, you can see whatever you want to see sexually. It's there. And so it's not the suppression of something as if we had no access to it whatsoever. There's something inside of us in the sex instinct that has gone deeply wrong and it's distorted. And so it is not just a physical appetite. What this shows us, this is number one, is that sex is so much bigger than just a physical thing. So much bigger than that. In fact, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, one of the first things that Paul addresses when he's talking to this community in Corinth is that idea. Starting in verse 12, he says, look, I've got the right to do anything, quoting something from that community that they used to say all the time. I have the right to do anything I want, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he goes on to say this, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The point he's making there, this, some of this phrase that had been said over and over in, in the city of Corinth is uh, food for the stomach, stomach for food. And, and, and what they're saying is this sexual impulse inside of you is just another physical, natural appetite. And Paul says, no, it's not. He, and going on, he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. And in that moment, we'll we'll explain this in a a little bit more about what that one flesh looks like. But in that moment, what Paul is describing is that sex, it's not just a physical appetite that needs satisfaction. It's something so much deeper than that. There's a unity, a whole life unity and commitment that goes along with the act of sex that just goes so much deeper. And so we can't just treat it like any other appetite. Except on the inside of us, man, we have those moments. If we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we have those moments where we treat it like it's just another biological urge and drive. And that's what, man, so many of us, particularly the guys in this room, it it gets us to that point where we're in front of a computer screen and we just reason in our own minds. We're like, no, it's, it's just out of curiosity. It's just that one look, just that one click. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just curious. And maybe for some of us at the workplace, like we're tempted to flirt with someone around us that, that we're not married to. We, we, We just, we reason in our minds. It's just one little flirt. It's innocent. And what Paul's getting at here is it's not innocent, and it's not just physical. It's not just not a big deal. It is a big deal, because it impacts everything about who we are. 
sex is so much bigger than just a physical appetite. Now, uh, we have to address this question moving forward now. It's not just a physical appetite. So what is it? What is God's view of sex? What, I mean, how did he design it in the very first place? How are we to understand this? So, is God anti-sex? This is really, really important, okay? Many people think that God is anti-sex because of how the church has communicated it over time. And I don't know about you guys, but like, I feel like most of the messages that go out about sex from the church are more about like, you know, what not to do. That this is wrong. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. Like, like sex is just a negative thing. And so a lot of people just think, man, like the message that we get all the time is that like sex is just a bad thing. In fact, uh, one person put it this way, from the church's perspective, <laughs> sex is dirty, vile, and nasty, so save it for the one you love. Like, that's the message that gets pumped out from churches all the time. And, and, and some have even said, man, well, the soul is more important than the body, right? I mean, doesn't the Bible teach that the soul is more important than the body? And so if that's the case, then, you know, maybe let's just treat sex as if it's just a procreation thing. And outside of that, let's, you know, let's try to leave it alone. Here's the problem with this, and, and people will also cite some of the, like, the historical uh, models of Christianity. Jesus, he was single. Paul, he was single. So many priests for hundreds of years, they were celibates. And you look at the Virgin Mary, and a lot of people are like, I don't want to be a virgin, you know? So like, there's this bad message that gets sent out there about sex. Now, so we have to go from the very beginning, how did God design this? Check this out. God made the world in six days. He climaxed the sixth day by making humans. How did he make humans? Did he put them in clothes and button them up all the way to the top? He made them naked. He made them naked. And he put them in the garden. And I'm telling you right now, he didn't make them just so that they could garden in the nude. Like, you know, Adam wasn't there just like, hey, uh, why don't you pick up a rake and start raking? Adam was like, Whoa! And it was a good thing. Like, God made it very good, okay? Like, Adam's like, finally! Yes! I've been watching all the other animals do this, and woo! It's here, all right? So, like, God made nakedness, and he made it very, very good. There's something incredible about it, okay? So, we have to understand that when God made the natural world, and when God made human beings, and he made them naked, he didn't just made them naked to garden. He made them naked so that they'd be attracted to each other. And there's something beautiful about this oneness of sex. And not just for procreation, but for real physical attraction and pleasure. This might make you really uncomfortable, but God made certain parts of your body to function not just for procreation, but for pleasure. He made that. If God made that and he said it was very good, then we have to take him at his word. Sex is a good thing and God loves sex. The anti-sex worldview actually comes more from a platonic worldview back in the Greek world that tried to seriously separate the physical from the spiritual realm. In a lot of ways, what they said is you've got to try to disengage from this physical world in order to engage the spiritual realm. And Jesus Christ comes along and says, no way. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, uh, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ, and Christ was raised from the dead? It's kind of an interesting side note here, but when Christ was raised from the dead, he wasn't raised as a ghost. He wasn't raised as a phantom spirit. He was raised as a physical man. 
And in so doing, what God said is this physical world is good. And I'm not redeeming you away from this physical world. Eventually what I'm going to do is I'm going to unite heaven and earth to show you the goodness of creation and the physical world. And I'm going to redeem all of it, including your bodies. And then in that moment, what we're hearing is that sex is good. It is good. But we don't talk about it in the church. And shame on us for not talking about it. Because everyone else is. <laughs> and man, I'm telling you right now, if we capitulate to the public school systems or to TVs and movies to be the primary sex educators in our home, we are losing it. Because God has a lot to say on sex and the beauty of it. And we're going to lose a whole generation of people from following God when we do not portray how good God's design is for this. We've got to be able to talk about it. And we've got to be able to talk about it in the church. We've got to be able to talk about it in our homes. If we don't talk about it there, they're going to find out about it somewhere else. And we want to be able to teach them the right one. Now, before I move on to this and, and talk a little bit more about how good all of this is, uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that this is a real battle for all of us. I mean, some of us have come into this room from a lot of different perspectives, okay? Maybe you come out and you've been single your whole life, and maybe you've been holding out. You know, you're holding out for that marriage, and it's frustrating. There's a real sense of battle inside of you because, like, you know that you, you've been made a sexual being, and yet you have not been able to fulfill it. Maybe some of you, you've got a sexual past, and you've been with a whole bunch of different people, and your heart's been all over the place, and you come into this thinking, man, like, if God's sexual ethic is just for the marriage, is God anti-me? Am I out of this on this one? Does God even love me? And some of us, maybe you got into marriages and you didn't even know what sex was like when you got into your marriage because you grew up in the church and they never talked about it or the goodness of it. And like you started off on a really frustrating note. You had no idea how to engage it. Was it just for procreation or am I supposed to actually enjoy this? Maybe you don't even know. There's a lot of us that come from a variety of places in here. And again, man, we just want to level the playing fields here and let you know it's okay to journey in this. And regardless of what your past is like, you can start fresh today. <laughs> and our hope at the end of all of this is that it's not just sex that we're reconciled with in the biblical perspective of it, but we're reconciled with this fact that God wants a relationship with you and with you for all eternity that's actually going to far exceed anything that we could ever have in the sex realm. Now, outside of God and what he thinks about sex, the next question is, well, what about this Christian sex ethic on marriage? I mean, isn't that boring? I mean, we watch these movies like James Bond, and James Bond gets to go around the world and, like, conquer wherever he sees, and, and part of that conquest is finding some foreign chick to go bunk up with. Like, that's, that's what's so exciting about the sex life. Like, man, like, it's got to be so boring if you just limit yourself to one person. We get TV shows like Seinfeld and then Friends where it's just like, man, everyone's kind of sleeping with everyone. And, and man, if you, if you take that out of the picture, sex is just going to get incredibly boring. <clears throat> Nothing could be further from the truth. And what I want to do here just briefly is talk about how beautiful but also incredibly pleasurable it is within the marriage context, okay? And how actually it is far more pleasing, far more pleasing, even statistically, in marriage than it is outside of marriage, okay? Our culture sees uh, sex as kind of like opening Christmas presents. In the moment where you open a Christmas present, you get that joy and that thrill of opening the gift. And, and like once you've unwrapped it, 
you can't kind of rewrap it and then unwrap it again. It takes all the thrill out of it. You know, you can't like rewrap a Christmas present in the afternoon after you've unwrapped it in the morning and be like, man, surprise! Like, it doesn't happen that way. And so a lot of us are like, man, aren't you going to take the sparks out of sex if it's just within a marriage, just the two of you? So this is crazy, but the University of New York and the University of Chicago actually did uh, a wild study on sex, both in marriage and outside of marriage, and this is what they concluded. It's been said uh, that it's the most authoritative study on the uh, pleasure of sex in all of our culture. They said this, Of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied were married couples. No joke. Uh, Another book... uh, and it's, it's, it's a good book to read. The Case for Marriage, Why Married People Are Happier, Healthier, and Better Off Financially, written by Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher. They, they said this, 40% of married people have sex twice a week compared to 20% of single and cohabiting uh, men and women. Over 40% of married women said their sex life was emotionally and physically satisfied as opposed to 30% of single women. of men, married men, are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabiting men. And and they've they've said in this book, marriage, marriage sex beats all else because married women had much higher rates of usually or always having orgasms. 75% in marriage as compared to women who had never married, only 62%. And so the studies are actually coming out in our culture that married sex is actually better. It's more pleasing than it is uh, in any other context. And that's because, once again, sex is so much more than just physical. It's so much more. Check this out. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Don't you know that, the, that he who unites himself to a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. What did Paul mean by that? When he said the two will become one flesh, don't you know he, he who unites himself to a prostitute? Basically what he's saying is that there's not just a physical unity going on there. Otherwise, he would have said, don't you know that he who unites himself physically with a prostitute becomes one physically with her? Like, there's no point in saying that. What he's saying that when you unite yourself physically to someone, you're also uniting yourself in a one flesh context to that person. And that one flesh that was said both in Genesis and with Jesus in, Mark, in uh, Matthew chapter 10 is this whole life oneness. It's like two souls intermingling with each other. And that's what happens when you've engaged in sex with someone else. It's so much more than that. And we get it, don't we? Man, I mean, there's a, I mean every one of us in this room, I don't, I don't care what your past is like, we've all got a past on this one. We've all got a past in this. It messes with you in your emotions. I mean, when you, when you look at people that have, have taken their dating relationship to the sexual realm and they break up, There is a deeper hurt there than there is if they never had sex a part of that. And it's not because it's just a physical thing. Like, sex is not the same thing as giving someone a high five or a hug. It's not. There's something so much deeper that goes on in the middle of all that. And it's all about this one flesh design. And I heard one pastor say this. You cannot get naked physically with someone without also getting naked in every area of life. And this is the power of marriage sex. Because in the context of marriage sex, you're also talking about a covenant. That's what marriage is. 
It's this covenant that says, man, I'm with you and I'm for you. I'm actually giving my life for your sake to help you get to a better place in your life. And a lot of people will see it as self-fulfillment. It's not. It's self-donation. Marriage is, I'm giving myself for you so that you can get to a better place. And inside that marriage sex, that's why marriage sex is so powerful because it's in this exclusive covenantal relationship that says, this is not about me. This is about you. And and Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way, it's far easier to be vulnerable with someone who has bindingly promised to be exclusively faithful to you than to someone who's under no obligation to stay with you for more than one night. Sex renews and revitalizes the marriage covenant. Man, that's the power of marriage sex, is that every single time you go into it, you are renewing that covenant. You are re-saying to the other person, man, I'm for you, I'm with you, I'm in this with you. And what better way to renew a covenant, huh? Man, I'm telling you right now, if you're married right now, you're just like, yes! You gotta go home, husbands, and go tell your husband, man, we gotta go renew the covenant today, okay? Like Scott was just telling us, we gotta renew the covenant. All right, uh, so, but great sex is also, it's just so critical to a great marriage. You can't have a great marriage without great sex, and you can't have great sex without a marriage. Now, I get it, I get it. We're all coming from a variety of different places, and sometimes travel messes with you, sometimes age messes with you, sometimes uh, pregnancy messes with you, and those are all factors, but God has designed it so that the greatness of marriage and that covenant and sex would go hand in hand, constantly renewing and revitalizing each other. Now, we also have to understand here that in this, God, part of the renewal covenant is not just procreation, it's deep pleasure. Deep pleasure. This, this might come as a total surprise to some of you. This is what the Bible says, okay? Uh, this is not Scott's word. This is what the Bible says about pleasure. And this is where we kind of have to buckle up a little bit, okay? Proverbs five eighteen through 19, it says this. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. I don't recommend you saying that to your wives, but this is what the Bible says. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated with her in your love. Be intoxicated. God's talking about, like, I don't want you to just kind of have this, like, passionless sex. I want you to be intoxicated. Like, I want it to be so good that you've lost your mind. Can't believe I'm talking about this right now. So awesome. All right. God devoted an entire book to the subject. An entire book. I'm telling you, Song of Songs is a spicy, highly erotic book. You cannot read it without certain physical things happening to you. Actually, they, the Jewish rabbis said that they wouldn't even let a 13, they wouldn't even let Jewish boys read it until they were 13 because it's so spicy. This is what it says, okay? And, and in this, God actually wants us to become, in the marriage context, aroused when you're reading this. Wow, this is crazy. I'm like, man, God, please forgive me if there's moments here where this is just nuts. Okay, Song of Songs 7, 7, 8 through, uh, 7 through 8 says, Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree and I will take hold of its fruit. This is the husband saying that. And in this, the wife responds, I belong to my husband and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let's spend the night in the villages. Let's go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded and if their blossoms have opened, if their pomegranates are in bloom. There, I will give you my love. They're having sex outside. That's crazy. That's in the marriage context. Like, they're talking about illegal sex at this point, okay? Like, they're saying, we want it to be so erotic that you are, like, dreaming about having sex outside of the home. 
This is what the Bible is saying, okay? That's how God wants us to see sex inside the marriage context. He wants it to be so deeply uniting, so passionate, so wonderful, because he's designed that joy to exist inside. Like, he's given that to us as a gift. He's given that to us. Now, in this, there's one of the objections in this, you know, we're, we're still God on trial here, okay? Uh, you know, examining the evidence in, against and for God. One of the arguments is like, man, it's, it's not only boring, but like it restricts you from having sex a lot. Because like, man, if you just have one person, you know, it, you're just gonna, not going to have sex all that often, right? The Bible says this too. In chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, it, it says... Um, now for matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the kind of their catchphrase in Corinth at the time. He's like, that's wrong. Uh, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. It should happen. And each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his married duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. There's a duty there. And I'm like, man, that's the best duty of all time, okay? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And I remind Charity of that all the time. My body's yours, babe. You can have it, okay? I'm all yours. Uh, Do not deprive each other, it says. Don't deprive each other. Don't do it. Except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, this is a gift from the Lord. And he says, don't deprive each other. You've got to fulfill this duty. I mean, and, and the implication here is you, it's got to be frequent. You've got to make it frequent. And some people have asked, like, well, what's the, what's the amount of time that should pass between? Martin Luther said every two to three times, uh, 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 two to three times a week will keep the tempter away. So, like, if you're generally healthy and you're not traveling and there's not any health issues or anything like that, like, generally two to three times a week is a really healthy pattern. And, man, I'll be honest, like, if it doesn't happen, you know, every two or three days or, you know, anything past three days, sometimes Charity and I can get into these places where we're kind of, like, battling each other and there's some frustration and friction in our marriage and we start saying some sharp things every once in a while. And that's, like, just your pastor being super honest with you, okay? Like, there's something good about the frequency of sex, God's designed it in the marriage context to be that way so that we'll take care of each other. Now, and here's just the last thing I want to say on this side. And, you know, some of you are like, I can't believe this is actually happening in church right now. Uh, but there's another lie that goes out there in the narrative of the sex world that, that, that is our culture right now that says that you have to be somehow in the mood in order to make it happen. Like, even when you're married, like, you know, you can just refuse the other person because, you're like, man, I'm just not in the mood right now. And it's a lie because, uh, let's just get an amen out there. Someone's like, yeah, amen, you preach it. Uh, because uh, what it is is that that's a deeply selfish motive. When you're saying, man, I'm just not in the move right now. Like, what you're saying in that moment is that sex is all about you. And the marriage context is not about you. It's about the other person. And in that moment, you have a gift to be able to give the other person. And sometimes, like, you know, there's stereotypical gender things of, like, you know, men and women, you know, either one being in the mood and one not being in the mood. But I'm telling you right now, like, if we, all right, let, let's just do this. Let's, let's apply the, the ethic of Philippians chapter 2 to sex, okay? Philippians chapter 2, this is what it says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, to the interests of others. If you apply that to the sex ethic, do you know what that means? 
Even when you're not in the mood, you are there to please your spouse. And this is wild. You want to take your sex life to the next level? <laughs> I got your attention. So it's so awesome when I'm talking about this. Like everyone's just super quiet. No, like I got, I got your full attention in this moment. No one's falling asleep in this mess. It's just fantastic. Um, this is how you take your sex life to the next level. You ready for this? Um, if you want the best, most pleasure that you can get in your sex life within a marriage context, focus on pleasing your spouse. Focus on giving them the most amount of pleasure. When that happens, your, your own pleasure is going to go off the chart. Uh, Tim Keller also put it this way. Uh, man, I learned a lot from this guy this week. Each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it. In short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse get pleasure. And when you get to the place where arousal is the most arousing thing, you're practicing this principle. (laughs) Focus on giving it to the other person. And I'm telling you right now, it's actually changed our sex life. In, In some of the moments where it's been boring or monotonous, you focus on the other person and pleasing them, it's going to take your pleasure to a whole new level. It's what God's designed. He's he's designed us to be seriously selfless people. And within the marriage context, within within that exclusivity of the marriage context, it is a beautiful, powerful, powerful thing. Man, there's so much more that we can talk about, about the emotional engagement and how we actually engage that emotional engagement to help each other and serve each other. We don't have a lot of time for that. But the last thing that I really want to address is this, this topic that, man, sex is ultimate. And for a lot of us, you know, there's some of us in this room, maybe we've never had it, or maybe we, we're not married. Maybe we're, we're kind of frustrated in some of that. And, and our culture right now is saying that if you're not engaging in sex, you're not fulfilled as a person. You're not complete as a person. There's something missing about my life if I'm, if I'm not engaged in that. And Jesus wants us to know that at one point, sex will be retired. Because sex is not ultimate. It's not. Jesus actually said that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They're going to be like the angels. And in that moment, because there's no given in marriage, there's going to be no sex. It's going to be retired. But in its place, we will experience something so far greater that we won't even have time to even think about missing sex. And this is hope for all of us in this room, no matter where you are at is that the unity that we have in our relationship with the God of all creation who wants to know us and develop that kind of friendship with us, that will far exceed any joy that you can ever get physically in sex. In fact, that's the whole reason that Jesus came into this world to begin with. For all eternity, God had existed in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a beautiful friendship that didn't involve sex. It was just this beautiful, wonderful friendship that had so much deep love and joy and hope that they didn't want to keep it to themselves anymore. That's why they created this world. They created this world with human beings inside of it so that they could extend that same kind of joy and that love and that hope and and that unity with themselves to us as human beings. It's the greatest gift that God has ever given us. Jesus said in John 10, I and my Father are one, and it's a deep oneness. And in John 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I am loving you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, catch this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. 
if you have never engaged in sex and you are single and you, you have no prospects on the horizon, your joy can be complete. Complete. Hear me on that one. There's going to be a day where sex is retired and that's okay. What sex is doing ultimately inside the marriage context is pointing us to the joy that will far exceed everything that we've ever experienced here. We're getting a glimpse, just a fraction of the joy that we're going to get for all eternity with God when we enjoy sex. There's going to be a deep level of goodness in all eternity that will make everything else pale in comparison. And when we miss that, we miss something critical about what it means to be in a relationship with God. And C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said, the letter and the spirit of Scripture, and this is what we'll end on today, and of all Christianity, forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives, either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies, or at all else perpetually fast. As regards to the fast, I think that our present outlook might be like that of a small boy on who being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask whether or not you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolate as the chief characteristic of sexuality. And in vain you would tell him that the reason why lovers in the raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows only chocolate. He doesn't know the positive thing that excludes it. And we're in the same place. We know the sexual life. We do not know except in glimpses the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Sex is ultimately a pointer for us to see God and the joy and the hope and the reason for living that can never be taken away from us if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and believe that when he died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins, that he came to reunite us with a loving Father who made us, loves us, and wants nothing more than full and ultimate and complete joy in your life for all eternity. Let's pray. God, my hope today is that somehow sex would be one more indicator of your goodness and your incredible love for us and the ways that you are so pleased with us. And the gift that you've given us in it, God, I pray that it would not be abused, but that we would submit ourselves to your design, seeing it, God, as this beautiful declaration of who you are. And even though it might be difficult, God, for us to submit to this exclusivity and sex within only the marriage context, one man, one woman, my prayer, God, is that it would connect us to the fact that you want an exclusive relationship with us. And you fought hard to kill every other intruder when everything else tried to vie for our attention, God, and, and proclaim and set itself up as if it's some sort of a God, it can fill us, God, whether it's a job or whether it's pleasure, God, or whether it's family or whether it's money or whatever it is, God, you just came in right in the middle of it and said, out of the way, I want my person back. I want my child back. I want to invite them back into the family because I love them. God, I pray that the exclusivity, the marriage covenant, of sex, God, would point us to the fact that you want the best for us. 
And only in in an exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ can we find the joy that our hearts are so longing for. It's in his powerful and matchless name we pray today.